It's showtime. Don't say it. Please, don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime! It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I am your host, as always, Show. Thank you so much for listening. You guys know I love to chat movies with you all, so uh, you can always get me on Twitter at SNS Alley with two L's or at Showtime Movies. No W on the show, of course. S H O Time Movies. Uh, and yeah, leave a comment. You leave some reviews if you like. Uh, you guys know, like I said, I love to just shoot the breeze with you when it comes to movies. And today on this episode of the podcast, we have three movies we're going to talk about. Okay, Nomadland, Raya, and The Last Dragon. Not Raya, as I as I definitely thought. Raya, as they say many many times in the movie. <laughs> Ryan, The Last Dragon, the latest from Disney, and of course, the long-awaited release of the Snyder Cut, right? Hashtag release the Snyder Cut for Justice League. And it's important to note, this movie is called Zack Snyder's Justice League. That is the title of this movie. It is not just Justice League 2021, right? Because, you know, the original one, like, you know, when movies come out, you put the little brackets next to their name and the, the year that came out, right? Usually that's what it says on your movie ticket at the very least sometimes, if the title is not too long. Well, this title is actually Zack Snyder's Justice League. And, uh, you know, I, I, I gotta say, I think he does do it, you know, to, for lack of a better word, justice, right? I think the movie is actually pretty decent, all things considered. Um, they did not, in the end, release it in, in what, like four parts or six parts as they wanted to, um, which, honestly... I can see why they wanted to, because the movie has title cards and everything, but I think that would have been a bad idea. Honestly, I think that would have been a really bad idea to chop it up like this, even though it is four hours, but whatever. We'll get to that a little later on in the episode. You can skip ahead if you like uh, to that part, that time code, if you like, because um, it is a a little bit of a lengthier review. Uh, I'm finally getting to Nomadland, right? I did say I was going to get to it. Finally, very glad I did get to it, because um, a little difficult to find here in Canada, but I did manage to watch it. Uh, it, it crazy to think this movie came out back at TIFF, right? I mean, that God, that was in September, September of 2020. We are in March of 2021. I simultaneously, it's crazy to me to think that was a long time ago, and it also feels like it was last week, right? Like time is a flat circle. Time moves in, in mysterious, strange ways, even more so during the pandemic. And certainly, I hope you are all staying safe Where, wherever you're listening from. I hope you're staying safe because, yeah, time has been so odd to me. I'm a homebody. I'm a, I'm absolutely a homebody. My fiance is a homebody. A lot. Of my roommate is a homebody. So by and large, I'm not saying COVID is a good thing, but by and large, my life hasn't really changed beyond working from home instead of like working out of the office, right? Where I will be re- recording this episode late at night out of a recording booth instead of at home with like this podcast mic I have, right? But either way, um, it's it's crazy to think that was in, in September of 2020 and now we're in, in March of 2021. But yeah, let's get right into these movies. The Oscar nominations, I will say, at the time of me recording this, are out, okay? The Oscar nominations are out and you guys know I love, I love talking about the Oscars. We will be doing that. That's, that's going to be a whole separate episode. I just wanted to devote this one to reviews, because these these movies I saw, they kind of started to sit. I just recently saw the Snyder Cut, so I figured that would be a good kind of place to stick a pin in it, do some reviews, and then we'll get to the Oscar nominations all on its own. We'll break it all down in the very next episode, and I think we'll have a guest as well, which is always fun, right? Because you guys are, I'm sure, tired of listening to me yammer on, so we'll get someone else's voice in here to, to join us and help break down the Oscar nominations. But for now, let's get to the first of the leading movies for the 2021 Oscars, Chloe Zhao's and Frances McDormand's Nomadland.
I am so happy I finally got around to watching Nomadland. Nomadland was like the one movie I missed out watching uh, at TIFF. Right, TIFF was what back in September. Gosh, I can't believe it's like we're already in March of 2021. I can't believe I've waited like what it feels like a year. I mean, time has a, has no meaning; it's a flat circle, right? As as we all know. But I, either way, I cannot believe I have finally come to see Nomadland. And here's the thing: we talk a lot on this podcast about expectations, right? I have said that expectations can make or break your viewing experience. And I think maybe because Nomadland has won every prize under the sun. Uh, I haven't talked too much about the Golden Globes. I don't plan to because I think they're a sham. But at the same time, it did receive a number of honors at the Golden Globes again, right? And I just think, you know, maybe it was being built up a lot for me because I guess where I'm, where you probably see where I'm going with this is that I, I didn't love Nomadland. I didn't love it. I, I liked it. I can see the praise for it. And it's specifically for... Francis McDormand and Chloe Zhao because of the things they accomplish in this movie. But beyond that, like, I, I get what Nomadland is trying to do, right? Like, Chloe Zhao is shining a light on an aspect of perhaps America. I'm, I'm sure this is a, a thing that is or, or possibly applicable to other countries everywhere. But because America is so huge, the United States of America, uh, this is a part of their, I guess, subculture or a subculture that is not really explored on very much or sh- shined a light on, let's say, right? Uh, very much at all, so I, I totally get that, right? Because of course, Nomadland at its core, if you want, if you want the the brief, uh, you know, cliff notes summary, the little synopsis of Nomadland, it is basically about a woman, Fern, who I guess spent her uh, later years in a mining town uh, where where everyone worked for a gypsum plant, I believe, and she was with her husband. Her husband got sick and passed away. She stayed in the town. The gypsum mine closed, and I guess everyone. Uh, lost everything and they were forced to move so because she couldn't you know she couldn't afford her house anymore she lives out of her van and it's basically a tale of how fern travels around the united states looking for seasonal work and in, in, in effect becoming a nomad and uh, meeting the making connections and being becoming a part of multiple different communities and living life in a very different and unique way and this is a real uh, subculture that again chloe Zhao is shining some light on and look francis mcdormand i actually think she is one of the only actors in this entire film. There's one other actor, David Strathairn, but I I don't really think he has a huge part. Like she, he does exist in, in a in a relatively significant way as far as it pertains to Fern. But at the same time, he's not that important to the movie, right? Like Francis McDormand basically does all of the heavy lifting here. And I will say, as far as she is getting accolades and praise for her acting work, I I do think that this movie just continues to cement her as one of the best actors like alive maybe ever right <laughs> certainly certainly alive that's for sure uh because the the way she can communicate things at a glance with a wry smile with a little tug of her cheeks right like it's just uh, you know the, at the corner of her mouth uh, a little furtive glance like she does so much with those things that other actors do in whole uh, you know drama filled monologues right like soliloquies like like i'm doing for this podcast basically right but but i i really do think you know she deserves the praise and and chloe zhao as well deserves praise because i mentioned francis mcdormand and david strathairn are basically the only actors in this movie because virtually everybody else in this movie okay is a real person they are real they're real people telling real stories that i believe have just essentially been coached up by the people who are working on this movie, certainly, I'm sure, by Chloe Zhao. 
in order to tell their stories in a more concise way. And I think the reason Chloe Zhao is getting you know a lot of praise for her directorial work is because of that. She also edited and and uh, wrote this movie because this movie is apparently based on a book. I haven't read it, but apparently she adapts this book to be you know less melodramatic, less of a less of a villain character is present from someone else there, and it's more of just an exploration of these people's lives, basically, right? So there's the kind of cliff note cliff notes. And like I said, yeah, a lot of other people in this movie are just regular people who, like I said, are just telling their stories in a very uh, succinct way, let's say. And I think that's uh, that's impressive. I got to say, like, there are... And she clearly blends... Chloe Zhao clearly blends her style of directing with, I suppose, a a documentary style almost, right? There are points where Frances McDormand's character, Fern, is essentially... Let's say she's sitting in uh, someone else's home and she's sitting across from someone and this person is telling her their story often you won't even see francis mcdormand in the shot like sometimes and i'm sure it was shot a little bit later or or maybe it was shot twice because sometimes you don't even see francis mcdormand in many of these shots like she first you see like an establishing one where she's sitting next to the person and then it cuts over to this person for a good like 30 to 45 seconds as they as they tell their their story which is often pretty gut-wrenching right because of you know why they're living in their vans like something happened to them in their lives or they experienced something or what have you and i think it's really interesting to hear these these people's stories because it they're like so valid and so human and like i said they're they're there are stories that we probably wouldn't otherwise even conceive of, right? For for people like me, for example, who live in big cities and have a job and and are very lucky in a lot of ways, right? So because I think we all maybe maybe as a, as an aside, we should all realize that we are all very lucky in a lot of ways. Like I'm lucky enough to be to have the resources to be doing a podcast, for example, right? And you guys you guys are lucky enough to be listening to it, right? So I just think. That's what I think the, the, the my favorite part of Nomadland was. It wasn't really anything with to do with the movie itself, but the ideas it like kind of provokes in your head. But other than that, I mean, I didn't love, for example, how with because I guess these people are not like trained actors; they're just being coached up. There's almost like no stretch of this movie that takes place for more than like thirty seconds at a time, right? Like there are thirty second little bites of Francis McDormand acting with somebody, and then they like cut away, right? Or thirty seconds with this person telling a little story, then it cuts away. Right, and then it cuts to another scene. And I will say, we were just talking about a, a lot over the course of this podcast about like you know not showing but telling. I will say this movie le- leaves a lot for you to understand and think about on your own. Right, it cuts ahead a lot of times, and it kind of leaves it up to you to be like, oh, how did Francis McDormand get from point A to point B? And I think that's just up, left up to you to really like. I don't know, not, not necessarily infer, I suppose, but just to understand the narrative, basically, right? And, and the movie is pretty cyclical as the, as the year, I think it basically depicts a full year in the life of Fern. And towards the end of the movie, the cycle begins anew, right? You see some of the same shots you saw at the beginning of the movie to kind of imply and show that time has passed, but she's going back to these same places and starting her own type of uh, new life, right? And, I, and I, again, look, I think Chloe, Chloe Zhao deserves all the praise for this blend of, of uh, documentary style, interview style, and the like actual you know, quote-unquote regular film directing. And I think Frances McDormand deserves the rest as well. Maybe there's an editing, an editing Oscar, if we're going to boil it down to Oscars like we so often do. Uh, there's probably an editing Oscar in there somewhere, maybe an adapted screenplay, right? But beyond that, I, I actually am not sure I would pick Nomadland for Best Picture. And I... And I and maybe it's just because I enjoy Judas and the Black Messiah and Minari a lot more as like whole pictures, whole movies. Because I think this it's almost like it's almost like a really well done 
art house film. And maybe that is what Nomadland is, right? I'm not saying those movies should not be eligible for winning major awards. And that's not what I'm saying at all. But it's just that I think I would rather see a movie like Minari win Best Picture, even if Nomadland does win Best Director and Best Actor and all these other technical awards, right? Anyways. I do think that it is an essential viewing experience for 2021 because it is very unique. I'm not sure we will ever see a movie like it again. And maybe that is a criteria for for Best Picture stuff, right? I think you can go either way on that argument. I clearly fall more on the side of, uh, you know, a little iffy on it. But at the same time, very well-made movie, extremely well-acted by by Francis McDormand. Very impressive work by all the real people who tell their very important stories as well. So if you haven't seen it, if you are able to watch it on some form of streaming like I was, I, I wholeheartedly recommend it because it is going to be one of the more talked about movies this year. And I think if you want to be part of that conversation, you should definitely do yourself a favor and uh, see it sometime soon. The next movie up, of course is Disney's latest, Disney Animation Studio latest. Uh, This is the same studio that made, what, Tangled, Frozen 1 and 2, uh, Zootopia, certainly, Moana, right? Lots of great films. Their latest, Raya and the Last Dragon, available actually on Disney+. Plus. Very similar to, well, if not Onward, uh, similar to the the live-action Mulan, right, via via Premier Access, because I think Onward was added... I think it was a unique situation, right? Because it was at the beginning of the pandemic, so Onward actually did come out in theaters, and then the theatrical run kind of got kind of got cut short. So Disney moved up the Disney Plus release date for Onward, like for free, quote unquote, right? If you pay for Disney Plus. But either way, the live action Mulan was released on via a premium video on demand, which was in Disney Plus called Premier Access, and uh, they did the same thing for Ryan and Last Dragon, a warm, funny, sweet movie, definitely geared more towards kids. But all the same, I, I think uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful film, and I think if you have kids, you'll absolutely love it. So let's get into the review for Raya and the Last Dragon. We have a choice to build or destroy, to fight or to come together. After I was finished watching Raya and the Last Dragon, I was thinking about the things that really struck me right away, right? Like you were kind of going over your your first impressions, and I I suppose recency bias is always going to be a thing, so I suppose take this with a grain of salt, but I want to say that the the first impression that I came away with from Raya and the Last Dragon was that it might be the most gorgeously animated movie maybe that I have ever seen, right? And you you don't want to be too much a prisoner of the moment, like again, recency bias, right? But genuinely... My my thing my thought process was I'm not really sure how animated movies that and Disney does have a pretty specific quality to them right because I, I would suppose you can go back as far as Tangled for this brand of like what Walt Disney Animation Studios right with the 3D stuff because it was what it was Tangled Frozen Zootopia Frozen Two I guess Moana. Um, I might be missing a couple there, but certainly Raya and the Last Dragon is the last one in that string. And none of them visually, and those movies are very pretty, right? Don't get me wrong. But none of them can hold a candle to Raya and the Last Dragon. Like, on, honest to God, I'm not sure where it goes from here. Because, like, you'll see Zizu, the, the dragon, will dive into the water and the, the, the fur on the dragon will be matted wet with beads of water rolling down it. And the the water particles are moving one way, and its hair is moving the other way. You know, Raya, I saw someone make a comment that I didn't even notice until after I watched the movie. Then I went back and watched some of these scenes again. Raya 
has like sun bleached hair. Because if you see the trailers, right, like, you'll see she wears kind of like a giant hat that you know meant to shade her from the elements, and so like she has really long hair. The tips of her hair are sun bleached and tussled and and messy and tangled, whereas the the top of her head, which is covered by the hat, is not right. And I think those are like there are so many great little attentions to details a lot of a lot of things admittedly have to do with water because water is a big part of this movie in general like generally speaking but my goodness i cannot believe i cannot impress upon you enough how pretty this movie is like disney has always been i suppose pushing that envelope and you know you guys know i like those kind of movies in general but i will always be struck by it right like the rest of the movie voice acting plot life lessons that Disney is trying to impart upon you, comedy slash humor, right? All that stuff is fine. It's fine, right? It's it's good to pretty good, I guess, I, I would say is how I would describe the rest of the movie. But honestly, the the thing you will, you will be stuck with, for me at least, struck by, is are the visuals, right? And you look at the other things as well. This movie is an hour and 47 minutes long, so it doesn't really linger on virtually anything. It's funny, I, I always say that movies could probably be, like, you guys have heard me say a million times, this movie could have probably been, eh, 40 minutes shorter. Eh, it could probably be 30 minutes shorter. I might say that Ryan the Last Dragon could have probably stood to be, like, 20 to 25 minutes longer, if not even longer than that, because they really deliver upon you a really interesting world, and there's a time skip, right? Because it's kind of one of those, like, the movie starts, there's a little bit of a voiceover, you see Raya in the in the kind of full adult getup you see her in the trailer, and then it zooms, zooms back to the lore-telling part, and I think that's maybe my only real criticism, criticism of this movie, is that it tells and doesn't show a lot, because it's trying to cram in so much stuff into an hour and 47 minutes, and here's the thing, I totally understand why they did that, because at, at its core, this is a children's movie, it's a movie made for kids, and, I mean, we know the Disney formula, right? They make movies for kids that parents can also watch, right? But it's not made for the parents. It's made for the kids, right? And I think that's, a, you know, made for families, as they say, right? But I think we can understand that. And, and you know, you know that an hour and 47 minutes. Like I wanna, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but I want to say that Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and all the, uh, you know, Disney Renaissance 2D animated movies are, uh, what, probably closer to 90 minutes long. This movie is longer than that, so they were probably pushing it already when it comes to the length of this movie because I am sure there's some study, some data that says movies, like empirical data that says movies can only be this long if you want kids under the age of 10 to, to pay attention or, or kids under the age of 5 to pay attention. So, again, I totally get it. But I this movie just smacks of... Now that Disney Plus is a thing, that they'll come out with some, you know, it's, it, the movie's about, like, this land that was split into five nations, and they're all at war with each other. So, can't you just see a Disney Plus series where, like, it focuses on a character from Nation A, and then it focuses on a character from Nation B, and then C, and then D, and then E, right? So, I, I, I really think that this kind of movie is, is tailor-made for Disney Plus and perhaps the era we now live in. And further to that, um, I want to say Zootopia, which is a movie we talked about already from the same people, uh, is a is a movie that's also getting a Disney Plus series, right, to examine some of the uh, non-main characters. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's a thing that Raya and the Last Dragon explores a little more. Um, the main characters, right, uh, Kelly Marie Tran voices Raya, Daniel, da Daniel Day Kim voices uh, her father, who's not a huge character, but I mean, still a pretty big get, right? Gemma Chan voices, I guess, the rival, and Aquafina voices uh, Zizu, the dragon, and... I would say those are the, the main people. I think Benedict Wong voices another minor character. But by and large, a lot of the minor characters are 
you know, they kind of fulfill their uh, their namesake. They are minor characters. They they have some funny bits and they have some funny sequences and dialogue and so on. And they all kind of are important by the end. And and certainly the the main message of this movie is about trust and trusting people and what trust costs you when you when it, when it's absent basically right so we won't spoil too much of it here but it's just you know the, those minor characters while they do have a lot to do with the message of trust it really is about Raya and and Gemma Chan's character Imari or Inari I forget what her character's name is to be completely honest but uh the, it is about those two women and how the initial trust and then later the lack of trust causes their world to fracture. Aquafina, I will say, I mean, at this point, I think, uh, outside of her dramatic roles, I think you are you know what you're getting from Aquafina, right? Like, she's going to be sassy and funny, and she's going to make a lot of silly jokes. And all of the modern references in this movie, in terms of comedy, are made via uh, Aquafina's character, uh, Sizu, right? Like, there's a, she makes a comment about popping and locking. She talks about being, like, the, the kid who who doesn't contribute to a group project and gets the same grade anyways. Like, like references that children and us as well, adults, c- can and will get. But And, and, the, and the rest of the characters kind of go, huh? What? Popping and locking? Captain popping and locking? What? A test? Group test? What? Like, and, 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 I, and, of course, you kind of meant to kind of half roll your eyes and half laugh. And, look, she accomplishes that really well. She completely sets out. She does what she sets out to do, right? So I think that is uh, that's a that's a positive. That's a benefit because the film accomplished what it wanted, and and really, like, like I said, everything serves to uh, kind of benefit Raya as her foil, right? Like she is the main character for a reason. And I will say to wrap up this review because I mean, how much more can you really talk about without seeing it? I mean, again, it's like a it's like a hundred minute movie basically, right? For for uh, if you want to boil it down that way, but. Raya is cool, okay? That's what I'll leave you on. Raya is cool. She is one of the coolest heroines that Disney, I would say, maybe has ever created. She's badass. She has a cool look. Like, even when she takes off that kind of cool cloak thing and she takes off the hat, she has, like, her hair and this, like, kind of jacket thing with, like, baggy pants. She has this awesome sword that, like, you know, the, the, it's like it was her dad's sword and, like, it, you know, and all these little, different little parts. I don't, I don't really know how to, how to describe it. Like, it's like a sword, but also a whip, I guess. I don't know. It just, it's really cool. She's really, clearly really capable. She's a badass fighter. I, like, I, if I had a daughter or I had a, a kid who wanted to champion Raya, hey, you know what? I fully support it because Raya is a badass. So, anyways, you know, I, I, I think if you haven't seen it, I still probably like Soul a little better, and you know, we're, I don't know if we need to re- really get into well, Raya the Last Dragon beats Soul at the Oscars. It probably doesn't really matter, uh, but at the same time, Raya is a really fun action adventure romp, lots of comedy, definitely a family friendly movie, definitely a kids movie. But I still think it's a worthwhile watch all the same. And hey, the benefit is, won't take you very long to watch it. The last movie on the docket for today is a film that plenty have been clamoring for for a very, very, very long time. Hard to believe that the Justice League movie came out in 2017. I'm pretty sure I'm like pretty sure we covered this movie on this podcast. I think that might have been the one where we had Mark and David Stanush, the, the the brothers, of course. Mark comes on the podcast pretty often, David not so much. But the guys are great, and they, I'm pretty sure, helped me break down Justice League back in 2017. Can you believe that? That was almost... That was four years ago. 2017 was four years ago. That is wild to me. So here we go with Zack Snyder's Justice League. That is the official title for this movie. It's not Justice League. It's Zack Snyder's Justice League. The Snyder Cut. Hashtag release the Snyder Cut. It's been released, people. It's here. It's finally here. So let's talk about this. Here's my review. A bit of a lengthier review. But, I mean, this is a four-hour movie, so uh, I guess it deserves one. My review for Zack Snyder's Justice League. 
when you boot up Zack Snyder's Justice League for the very first time, because that is what we have to call it, you'll actually be greeted, before you're greeted with, I think, anything else, maybe the WB logo, but apart from that, uh, the, the first thing you see is a notice saying, this movie is being presented in the 4-3 format, like the 4-3 aspect ratio format, to preserve the integrity of Zack Snyder's original vision. And then the movie kind of like cuts into the 4-3 format where you, with the black bars on the side of the screen. And if you're watching this at home like I was, uh, and I was watching uh, on a, you know, as a lot of people do these days, on a widescreen, big screen TV, right? Like an H- ultra HD TV that I sprung for, right? And it's funny because I thought that would bother me a lot more throughout the course of this movie than it ended up bothering me. And in the end, I have to say, the Bite Size Review of Zack Snyder's Justice League. We'll just call it Justice League going forward because let's call it the Snyder Cut, actually, because that's probably uh, more accurate, right? Because that's what people refer to it as. The Snyder Cut bite-sized review is that it's actually pretty good. And maybe because I went into this movie with low expectations, but the reason I wanted to mention the aspect ratio thing is that despite those low expectations, I mean, certainly they were exceeded, but the movie was so engrossing that something that I... I, I went in knowing that I think it, I thought it would bother me it didn't bother me one bit. You forget about it, at least for me, seconds into the movie because you're so, if not engrossed, you're so fascinated by what's going on, right? Because I would argue that the Snyder Cut overall is not just about whatever additions were made, right? It's also about what things were taken out. Like, for example, if you guys remember, in the 2017 version of Justice League, there's a moment where Barry the Flash, uh, Bruce, certainly Batman, and Diana, Wonder Woman, are meeting after they recruit Barry to the uh, to the Justice League, right, to the team, and they get off, like, Bruce's plane or something, and they meet, like, on, I think they're meeting, like, on a, a tarmac or something, and look, I admit I, am, I may be misremembering the exact details, but there is a point in this movie where the Flash trips or something, and he falls on Diana, and he has, like, hands are on her boobs, right, and she kind of gives him, like, a, okay, what's up, what's up, dude, look, and he goes, oh, sorry, sorry, I'm hilariously awkward, sorry, and then he, like, walks away and, you know, comments about how she's, like, super hot for the rest of the movie, and uh, that scene is not in this film at all, right, there is uh, another scene, I think it might have, actually, this might be the tarmac scene, but either way, either way, there's a scene where uh, the three of them are together, and as as Diana is walking towards Barry and Bruce to meet them, she's wearing like super tight pants and a like a, a tight leather jacket. And the 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 shot starts from her like feet, and it works its way up, or it starts kind of like from her waist down. Either way, you see like a gratuitous shot of her butt, basically, right? Like in super tight fitting pants, and it just focuses on her butt in the foreground, with the two of them in the background looking at her, right? So you're seeing the like the shot is looking at her from her from behind, right? So you you just see her her butt essentially. So I've said the word butt a lot, but. Uh, oh, I did it again. <laughs> either way, it just that that's not in the movie. It's not in the movie either, right? And I think that's something that I, I I truly agree. I truly believe that you have to give credit to Zack Snyder for doing. He took out a lot of that gratuitous stuff. There are some some interesting comments. I think that just goes to show that Barry is kind of like a younger member of the team, and he's a kind of like a close to being like a horny not teenager, but he's like a horny young man basically because he makes comments about how Diana is super hot and thinks she'll go for a younger guy, and they make the comment she's five thousand years old. Barry, uh, she everyone's a younger guy to her, and I, I guess there there are some moments like that in the movie, but by and large, another thing that was taken out were the uh, silly moments of levity, right? Remember the whole Superman chokes out Batman when he comes back to life and he says, 
are you bleeding or do you bleed? And Batman, when he gets like, tossed aside like a piece of garbage, when Lois comes to save the day, she, he goes, something's bleeding, right? And that's just like the, I guess, trademark Joss Whedon humor uh, that they that they wanted, right? They wanted that because that's what made the Avengers so popular, all the little quips. And they largely did away with that. They largely did away with that. And I think by and large, it is a good thing for the tone of this movie because this movie is moody. It is brooding. It is dark. It got an upgraded, I believe, R rating. So there's a lot of F-bombs and, like, they say the word shit a couple times and plenty of gore as well. Lots of gore, right? Like, the, the parademons, which are, like, the faceless aliens that the our heroes, our intrepid heroes, just beat the crap out of for most of this movie. You know, a lot of them die, like, by getting their faces melted or just gunned down. Lots of gun violence on Batman's part. My God. Like, it's a good thing these people aren't, like, real beings, real humans, because he guns down, like, guns down these parademons by the hundreds, right? Diana swords a couple guys, like, stabs them, impales them. Same goes for uh, Arthur Curry, Aquaman, his tridents. It's just a lot of a lot of violence and a lot of really bloody violence, gory violence. And I think that's another huge change as well. I would say that probably... Let's say the biggest change to uh, the Snyder Cut, right, would be the, the I'm not sure if it's like the addition or at least the reintroduction, re-edition, whatever you want to call it, of the storylines that are integral to both Barry and, and Cyborg, right, Victor, Victor Stone. And it's crazy because if you guys remember, the whole, Ray, like, Ray Fisher kind of spoke out, I think it was in 2017 or shortly afterwards, about how he had been mistreated for a very, very, very long time at the hands of Joss Whedon. And a lot of people kind of in the in the industry or in the in the studio uh, came to side with Joss Whedon against him, right? And it did, I believe, smack of racism. And I, and I, I will fight anyone who tells me that it's not at least partially based on that, especially now that all these allegations have come out from various actors who have actually worked with Joss Whedon, men and women. So I, I think that's a that's a huge thing in Ray Fisher's favor. But I think just from the acting thing as well, he was pissed that a lot of his role had been cut. And I got to say, after you watch the Snyder Cut, I would be pissed too if I was Ray Fisher. Because it is it is almost an incomprehensible mess of a film without Cyborg slash Victor's plot being integral to the telling of the story, right? Like, if you if you chop out all of Cyborg's uh, scenes from the original, from this cut, and aired it as is, just to make it shorter, you would not really understand a lot of motivations or a lot of explanation or really anything, right? Because his his backstory with his father, why his father took one of the mother boxes, the cube things, the little magical MacGuffins that they're after in this movie... You know, what? how he is integral to separating the cubes in the first place, why he is able to, all those questions are answered by simply just having a couple more scenes of him in the backstory. And I gotta say, that those were the scenes that were cut is a real shame, because they're they are great, I gotta say. He is the, he is the, if you, you know how people often use the cliche, like, who is the heart of the movie, or who is the soul of the movie? It is unquestionably... Victor Stone, right? It's unquestionably Cyborg. And look, I mean, my uh, my introduction to Cyborg is largely through the Teen Titans uh, animated program from when I was younger. But at the same time, it's not that Cyborg in the sense of him being fun and cuddly and stuff. But again, this is a super brooding adult movie, and it's made by Zack Snyder. So, I mean, what are you going to expect, right? But either way, Cyborg is is probably the best part of this movie. And, and second behind him is Barry, right? The Flash. I, I would say when I watched this movie the first time, he was very underwhelming. I got to say, very, very underwhelming. And this movie, a pivotal aspect of this film is about Barry and the Speed Force, something that is not even, like kind of hinted at in the in the original telling of this movie so again another aspect of this film that was completely cut and that i feel like you you can't really tell the story without it 
which I find wild. So there you go. It's, it's really interesting to see that uh, Barry and uh, the Flash, let's call them by the superhero names, the Flash and Cyborg are probably the two most important characters. Like, certainly Superman coming back to life and beating the snot out of Steppenwolf. But, I mean, like, you kind of knew that was going to happen, right? Like, you knew a, a huge part of the reason why Clark Kent slash Superman is not in this movie for the majority of the film is because he would come back and kick the ass of every single character in this film and the movie would be over in 10 minutes, right? So they had to build up to it for sure. But at the same time, it is, yeah, it's really interesting to see that Barry and and uh, the Flash and Victor uh, Cyborg are uh, so integrally fun and, you know, a, a charming heart and soul part of this film. I mentioned Steppenwolf as well. Steppenwolf is really interesting because uh, voiced by Kieran Hines, right, if you recall him, he's been in like so many different things. I want to say most recently he was in Game of Thrones, but I mean, time is a flat circle, right? I mean, <laughs> Game of Thrones ended, I feel like a million years ago. Um, also not very well, but either way, uh, that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, Steppenwolf is oddly sympathetic in this movie, right? You know how um, Infinity War made Thanos, if not sympathetic, made you like at least kind of see things from him, his perspective a little more? There are a lot of scenes in this movie where Steppenwolf is just on his own, right? He's just on his own retrieving things. And I gotta say, kudos to him. He doesn't send the parademon guys to go get things for him. He goes and gets those three mother boxes himself. He gets his hands dirty. So good for him. Good for Steppenwolf for, <laughs> for stepping up. Uh, but I'll also say that... Again, super sympathetic. Like, the guy clearly had, like, fallen out of favor for whatever reason. Like, he, like, rebelled against Darkseid or was a part of something to do against Darkseid, whatever. And his punishment was that he had to capture 100,000 worlds. And he'd only captured, like, 50,000 worlds. It was something like that. Like, he needed to capture 50,000 worlds and Earth was going to be the first one or one of many. And and they discover something that Darkseid wants. Now, I admit I am not super familiar with a lot of the DC stuff because we eventually learned that Darkseid wants Earth or he's been looking specifically for a planet that has the what's called the anti-life equation, which which will allow him, I guess, to, as the name implies, exterminate life everywhere, I guess. Anyway, Steppenwolf realizes that Earth is that planet and he calls out to Darkseid. He phones him on the interstellar cellular and he gets a hold of him. And Darkseid says, look, if you can conquer Earth, you can come back home, bud. And, and Darkseid, or uh, Steppenwolf's eyes get as wide as saucers. They're like anime eyes. And then it, it, it's pretty much like, a, I feel like 15 or 20 minutes later, movie time, where Superman, it's, you fast forward to Superman just beating the crap out of Steppenwolf. He like lasers him. He, he, like, there's a part where he's literally just down on the ground and, Steppen, and, and Superman is just beating him into the turf with his bare fist and, like, and just taking a break to laser him every now and then. And honestly, I gotta say, I felt a little bad for him. I felt bad. He was a cool character. He had, first of all, visually, they upgraded him. He got a huge upgrade in this movie, uh, visually, because they, like, he was already wearing that kind of shiny armor, but it moved a little differently, and it had this kind of purpley kind of indigo tint to it, which was kind of cool. So I, I think he just looked a little more interesting. He cer certainly didn't have a lot, uh, you know, uh, dialogue-wise, that was all that great. But either way, I mean, what are you going to do, right? It's, it was a... Uh, they didn't change too much with him, but they added some motivation that, like I said, made him a little sympathetic. And in the end, I, I, I think it maybe because the other DC villains have been kind of copy-paste, kind of bland. He was certainly not that much less bland, but he was certainly fine, right? He was fine. And I thought the additional stuff of him just wanting to go home for the first time in like a thousand years also added a different layer to him as well, which is kind of fun. Which I guess is is slightly different from the standard fairy you come to you come to expect from superhero movies, but I mean there you go, right? It's a you you take what you can get when it comes to those aspects of these films. 
by and large, I will say that this movie was pretty good. As I said at the beginning, the visual effects were, I would say, largely decent. Sometimes the cyborg special effects specifically, because, I mean, most of his faces, like, most of what you see a human, it's human of his is just, a, like, half of his face and, like, his cheek and nose and stuff, right? So sometimes the, the, the special effects around him can look a little uncanny valley, but, like, by and large, I would say most of the special effects are pretty good, right? You see Superman's black suit. Batman gets an armored version of his uh, cool outfit, right? I- I've always been a big proponent of the Ben Affleck Batman, so it, it was cool to see him uh, get a couple more outfits, right? His All his tech looks pretty cool. All the all the fighting sequences move very smoothly, even though it's all very video game-ish, right? It's like, kill 10 waves until you move to the next area, right? Until you clear this area, then you can move on. It, it did feel a little like that at times, but at the same time, I'll never fault the visual effects, uh, Barry using the speed force was pretty cool. A lot of really like hazy, ethereal things going on. And when he just goes, when he just uses his speed powers and in in, just in general, the lightning and the glass breaking and all sorts of things like that also look very, very smooth and very polished. You can see why they took so much time to put this out. Diana herself also didn't like she didn't have too much changed I I will say right I was I think she had a couple cool action moments I think largely is reduced to expository moments of like here's what Darkseid did and here's what Steppenwolf did and here's what the mother boxes are and here's what the unity thing is and this and that but I mean like I mean I'm not going to complain too much because she also has two other movies and is getting a third right so she is probably the most popular member of, of Justice League maybe maybe less so now because 1984 was like frankly bad but at the same time the visual effects around her, and like I said, everyone else just absolutely cannot be faulted. Last thing, too, I'll say, uh, the uh, much-vaunted, not reunion, I guess, but first meeting or alternate universe meeting of Batman and Jared Leto's Joker was pretty interesting. There was some F-bombs thrown in there. Uh, the Joker makes, makes a dig about the Boy Wonder, i.e. Robin. Um, Batman <laughs> makes a similar dig about Harley Quinn. It's, uh, it's all, they get very personal, which I thought was really interesting. But I, I think uh, even though it is an alternate reality, and I don't know how much more of that we're, we're actually going to see, I thought it was cool. I got to say, I thought it was cool. Jared Leto's Joker works a lot better and still it's still pretty campy and still pretty over the top but it works a lot better when he's not just completely covered by whatever mental stuff david ayer's got got's going on right the guy who directed suicide squad maybe he just maybe he really had a specific vision that he really wanted to execute but i gotta say joker lost the tattoos he was wearing some kind of like lab coat lab gloves he had an interesting outfit on had like a swat vest with a bunch of gotham city like badges on them um, and he was clearly unhinged. He had the Joker card. Like, sir, it's it's fan service. Absolutely is fan service, as was the, the Martian Manhunter cameo. It was fan service, no doubt. But I thought at the very least, the Joker conversation with Batman was well done. It wasn't just like a 30-second a thing. It was an actual couple minutes of dialogue at the very end of the movie. So stick around. I mean, the, the movie really shows you until you get, like you know when you're getting to the end of the movie, right? So you're not going to just think it's going to cut out in the middle of the Joker-Batman scene. So enjoy it for what it's worth, I think. But I mean, yeah, you take it with a grain of salt because you don't know. You're not really probably, you're probably never going to see Ben Affleck and Jared Leto act in a movie together again. I would like to see that more, but I again, I seriously doubt it. My final rating slash reading of this movie, I usually don't rank things out of 10 just because I don't like to do that. But I feel like it's like a solid, if this helps give you an indicator of how I feel overall, even though I really liked it, I think it's a solid like 7 out of 10, right? Because this movie, I believe including credits, the total runtime of this film is 4 hours and 2 minutes, okay? There is no good reason. There's no good reason. No one can convince me as good as this movie was. 
nobody can convince me that there is a reason this movie needed to be four hours. Like, this movie starts with, like, a whole bunch of sweeping shots of Bruce being in, like, Iceland or wherever the hell he is. And then he arrives at the village and he talks to Aquaman, right? And then as Aquaman jumps out, like, lingering shots on, like, an Icelandic choir and, like... Maybe Zack Snyder had a buddy who was in there or someone on the crew knew someone and they, they wanted to get those shots back in or I don't know, like conversations that probably didn't need to happen, like Superman landing back at Wayne Manor and for, just for Alfred to say, he, he said you'd come. Now we just have to know if you're not if you're not too late. And it's like, well, he could have just flown straight to wherever the hell they were. They didn't really need to explain it. I don't know. They, there were just a lot of little scenes that I think over the course of this film add up where this movie probably could have been, let's say, three hours or like three hours and 15 minutes or something like that. Much better. Could have still been released in theaters, right? Obviously, COVID screwed a lot of that because I, I truly believe... HBO and Warner Brothers would have put this movie in a, in theaters if it wasn't four hours, right? I truly believe that. Maybe it just wouldn't have come out in, uh, whatever, March or whatever, like the first couple weeks of March, where they would have waited because of COVID specifically. But let's just say COVID wasn't a thing. If it was four hours, no chance it gets released in theaters, right? But if it was a little shorter, I think it would have. And I think this movie could have been and would have been perfectly coherent with the Snyder Cut vision of this movie without an hour to 45 minutes of let's say uh, of scenes in this film. That's my only real criticism of it, right? It's a it, I think the the moodiness and the acting and the over-dramatized things and the action and the silly dialogue at times. Honestly, I think it all works because it's there are things you have come to expect from Zack Snyder, right? Like you it's basically like Watchmen and 300 turned up to 11, right? Maybe not as much gore as 300, but still, like, you can see the echoes of his earlier big blockbuster works in Justice League, and, and I mean, certainly you could have seen his fingerprints all over the 2017 version, but really, this is what, he, if this is his original vision, hey, I'm all for it, but at the same time, it could have been shorter, and it would have still retained all of the parts, all of the things that made this version a million times better than the 2017 version, but again, Largely enjoyable. Really, I, I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I had fun. I probably would have, frankly, enjoyed seeing this in a movie theater because it's a perfect kind of mid-July, mid-summer watch where you go with your friends and you hoot and holler at the scene. You clap when Flash uses the, the speed force and Batman says his cool lines and Superman's punching the crap out of Stephen Wolf. You, you, you like that kind of stuff because that's what superhero movies are now. So it is a bummer to not get to see this in theaters, but ultimately, if you do have access to it streaming in Canada, you can watch it on Crave, and of course elsewhere, uh, you can watch it on HBO Max. I, I do recommend, if you like superhero movies, if you like Marvel or you like DC, I think either way, you'll find something interesting about this. So I, I do recommend, I said it was a 7 out of 10, still, I think that's pretty good, and I think that's good enough to give it a watch. That is it from me. For this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast, thank you for listening. That's it for reviews today. Uh, like I said off the top, but somewhere in that uh, opening ramble, uh, I did say we will get to the Oscar nominations. Okay, we will. We'll talk about the snubs. I think there have been some egregious ones. And look, I, by and large, I'm pretty happy with them, all things considered. But it's crazy to say that I think there are snubs, even in a in a weird, weird, weird year like this. I think the next two movies, because I will admit. I have not seen all of the Best Picture nominations, okay? I'm a little behind, as, as you guys know. I finally, we just did Nomadland in this episode, after all. The Father is still on my list. That's not coming out in Canada until, I want to say, the end of March, okay? So that's not going to be in the next episode. That's probably going to be in the episode following, right? Uh, Mank and Trial of the Chicago 7. God, I've tried to start those movies, and it's just work, plus just the, the sheer dauntingness of having to watch like a, a movie that... 
that just are two back-to-back very serious movies, I think, has, has, has kind of put me out a little bit. But I will watch Mank and Trial of the Chicago 7. I've heard some really different reviews from different people, people I trust in, in both regards. So I, I will want to see that as well. And The Sound of Metal, right? So Mank, Trial of the Chicago 7, The Sound of Metal, and The Father are the next four movies on my, uh, on my watch list. But uh, in the next episode, we will get to the Oscar nominations because that's always a lot of fun. We'll get to the, the nominations... We'll get to predictions in another episode as we get a little deeper into award season because, of course, the the uh, ceremony itself isn't until the end of April thereabouts, right? So we will get to another predictions episode. But for now, that's it from me. Uh, I hope I'm not dating myself with this music too much, but I don't care because it is kick-ass. <laughs> that is all from this episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast. As always, stay safe and have a great night. Something is definitely bleeding.